0: I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We are making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves finishing now chapter 7 this morning. And in doing so, we come to uh, what is arguably uh, not only a famous passage, but a very powerful passage if we understand it rightly. If we we come to, to understand it rightly, we will see not only the magnificent love of God for sinners, but how we should live in light of it. So I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. "'A certain moneylender had two debtors. "'One owed 500 denarii and another 50. "'When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. "'Now which of them will love him more?' "'Simon answered, "'The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. "'And he said to him, "'You have judged rightly. "'Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? "'I entered your house. "'You gave me no water for my feet, "'but she has wet my feet with her tears "'and wiped them with her hair. "'You gave me no kiss.' From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. Now some of the things going on in this passage are so culturally remote to us. We need to take a moment and unpack the setting so we can rightly understand what we're seeing here. Because our goal, always as we're looking at uh, the scriptures, is to to try and get into the scene, to try and to, to take ourselves, not so much to bring it to the present, but to bring ourselves to the past. And so we want to, to get into the scene as if we were there at that dinner party watching all of this unfold right in front of our eyes. And in order to do that, we first need to understand that people in Jesus' day spent a lot of time on the floor. Okay? Um, one of the things that we, we tell our teams going to Africa, third world country, uh, particularly the people group that we're at, and that is uh, try watching television on the floor. Get a pillow off your couch or your bed and and relax, re- recline, figure out how to eat on the floor and so many other things because when you go to their house, you spend a lot of time on the floor. In fact, many of them only have chairs for when they have guests from America, Likewise, in the New Testament setting, uh, culturally very similar to much of third world Africa, uh, they were not sitting around on tables and chairs like we are, whether round, square, or anything else. They're, they're sitting on the floor, they're reclining out with, laying on pillows with their feet either stretched out sideways or tucked up under them. Uh, that was very typical for them even at mealtime. So when you sat down to eat, it was gathered in circles and clusters around the food. No one is sitting Cross-legged, your feet were tucked behind you or stretched out to your side. Furthermore, houses are not set up like they are today. You didn't have all the different rooms for all the different things. Homes basically had an open floor plan. And with a wealthy man like this Pharisee, he probably also had a large courtyard. And so when he would throw a dinner party, it wasn't about uh, table settings and, and nameplates and, and picking very carefully who's sitting next to, to, to who. No, he would invite a group of people. And then uh, as the food was brought out, as people were seeing coming, uh, neighbors would begin to kind of file in and hang out at the edges. It became a means of conversation. It was much more like a block party than a dinner party. So you had neighbors, as we will see, that uh, sometimes were not really wanted or invited, and yet they showed up to take part in the festivities. Along those lines, we need to finally remember that while good food was appreciated, meals were more about relating to other people than it was about having something to eat. It was a time to get caught up to express support or, or engage in dialogue or deepen in a friendship. And here we have this man, a Pharisee, the kind of man, as we've seen in Luke so far, that usually stayed away from Jesus, inviting him to his house for dinner. And of course, the question that should be in our minds is, what does he want from Jesus? Why is he inviting him here to take part at this meal? Is it because he's like Nicodemus? He is interested in Jesus? He, he thinks perhaps he truly is a prophet from God, and he wants to, to know more about him and to question him? Or is he looking to to trap him in some way? Is he perhaps looking to be popular with the people because Jesus was popular with the people? Frankly, we don't know. And it doesn't really matter because what matters is that in the midst of this party, in the midst of this dinner, this woman appears. And it's in her appearing that we begin to see something of God's forgiveness of sinners and how that should affect our lives. Think about what would happen if you were out at a restaurant or even if uh, you were at our last church picnic, and this woman that nobody knew comes in and approaches one of the men and takes off their shoes and begins crying all over their feet and begins wiping it up with her hair, kissing and kissing. It would be quite an extraordinary thing, wouldn't it? I mean, I mean, my, my thought is the bocce ball would stop, the dingleberries would stop, uh, the hot dog uh, would stop mid-mouth as everyone just gaped in astonishment. What in the world is going on? If that was the case today, in 2013, think about how much more astonishing a thing it would have been for a woman to approach a man who was not her husband, who was not her brother, who was not her father, who was not even her cousin, and do such a thing publicly. It would have been extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. People would have been shocked. Others would have been indignant, supposing something untoward or even tawdry was going on. Others might even laugh. It would be awkward and extraordinary. And here even Luke is wanting to heighten this. Again, sometimes if we're not reading carefully, we miss it. But notice how he introduces the woman. Behold! There is this explanation. Ha ha, look! This woman came in! And this is what she did, this amazing, astonishing thing. It was this extraordinary behavior that not only revealed the hardened heart of the Pharisee, but the heart of this forgiven woman as well. This is what in fact leads her to act in the way that she does. It leads her to to act with such abandon. She is a woman that is known for her sin and yet she has found forgiveness through Christ. Two people have encounters with Jesus that day. Two people are eager to be with him, but only one shows any sign that they have gone away changed. And as we think about reading and unpacking this passage, the question that we have to ask is have we encountered Jesus for ourselves? Have we met God's Son in the pages of Scripture? And have we gone away changed? Have we we read the Gospels and just just said, huh, and walked away? Have we read the Gospels and experienced a changed life? I saw a very famous writer uh, uh, of television in England one time who sent a tweet and said, I uh, spent the afternoon reading the gospel of Luke. It was good for a laugh. And I thought, how, how terrible that this, this man with all of his talent in writing and script editing, and yet he comes to one of the greatest pieces of literature in the world and just simply walks away with a laugh. That's not what Luke intends. Luke intends for us to see clearly who Jesus is, to put our faith in Him, and to be changed. So this morning, that is our goal, and that goal comes in the context of forgiveness. What does it mean to be forgiven by God? How can one be forgiven by God? What effect should that forgiveness have in our life? Those are the kinds of questions that we want to answer from this passage today. So as we think about this theme of forgiveness, we want to begin by seeing first the attitude of forgiveness, the attitude of forgiveness. If this woman is acting the way she is because she has been forgiven, how would we describe the attitude, the heart of a person who has been forgiven? First we see that the forgiven are thankful. The forgiven are thankful. Luke says, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now this woman was well known in the city as a sinner. Many commentators and pastors have said that this woman was was likely a prostitute. Well, she might have been, but the truth is we're not told what her sin is. Uh, we don't know what she had done to earn the reputation that she had. All we're told is that she's living in the same city as Simon, the Pharisee, and that she is a sinner, and that she's a sinner who is deeply thankful for the forgiveness she has been found she has found with God. Luke doesn't tell us when or how that this woman had previously encountered Jesus, but at some point we had. say, how do you know that? Because she comes prepared to anoint him. She doesn't just whip out the alabaster flask and say, oh, I think I'll put this on Jesus now. She comes ready. She comes ready to sit at his feet and to give him worship. And so we know that at some point before this she had she had been near Jesus she had heard him preaching she had heard the good news of the gospel that sinners can be forgiven because of Jesus own work on their behalf and she had embraced that good news by faith and had been forgiven and now now she hears that Jesus is back that she's at Simon that he is at Simon's house for this party and she is eager to go and to be with him again more than that again to worship at his feet This is why she brings that perfume with her. She's ready to anoint him in worship. But as she approaches Jesus, her Savior, something happens that I'm not sure she was expecting to happen. She becomes overwhelmed at the thought of her forgiveness. And she begins to cry. And she begins even to weep. You know, you say, well, it doesn't doesn't really say that. It just says that she has tears. Well, uh, some of you have actually cried once or twice in your life. And you know the difference between getting kind of choked up and and doing one of these things and sobbing to the point that your feet or someone else's feet would be wetted with your tears. Here's a girl who gets closer and closer and closer to Jesus and becomes more and more consumed at the thought of her sin that has been wiped clean before God. And she begins to weep. This is why Martin Luther calls these tears heart water. By that, he means the tears didn't just start in her eyes. They started at some place much deeper, much more primary, from her own heart as she welled up in thankfulness to God for the mercy that she was shown. And the question is is that the kind of response that you have when you get close to Jesus? Some people intentionally stay away from Him because they don't like what they experience, they experience guilt. For their sins. They know that they are a sinner and they in, implicitly, inherently feel the holiness of Jesus. Whether it is his presence felt as his people are gathered in worship or whether it's his presence largely felt as the Spirit points to him in the Word of God. But they will close the book, they will walk away from the church because they cannot stand that intense feeling of unworthiness before him they have not experienced God's forgiveness. But those that have don't feel guilt. They feel grateful. They feel thankful that God would look on them and say, forgiven, cleansed, my child now. The forgiven live in a spirit of profound thankfulness, but secondly, the forgiven are also servant-hearted. The forgiven are also servant-hearted. Luke says that as this woman was standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. For those in attendance, that that really would have been just too much. It was more it, it, it was enough that. This lady, this woman who had a reputation as being a sinner, kind of barged her way into this dinner party. But now, now she has gone so far to come into the midst, to go up to uh, the man in whom this dinner was what was given. He is the the guest of honor, and to begin not only crying at his feet, but now to begin to to undo the hair, to take off whatever covering she had, and begin to to wipe them down, kissing the very feet of Jesus. Now, what? Why would that have been such? Uh, an extraordinary thing other than the obvious, culturally speaking. Why would it have been so extraordinary? Well, to give you some idea, just this past week, uh, Melinda and I were talking about a, a, a new, a newer, I guess this has been out for a while, a series of dolls for girls um, that are the equivalent of the American girl dolls. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, they all have these different time periods and they cost like Insane amounts of money, uh, to buy the dolls and the clothes. And it's like, well, you, you can just read the books, Rebecca. Uh, and, and these other dolls are, are different. They're, they're, unless you want to buy one, in which case I'll gladly accept for her. Uh, uh, these, these have a different emphasis. This is a global series, heart for heart. And the intention is that when you buy, say, that the doll from, that, that is supposed to be a girl from Belarus, a portion of, of what you paid will go to help living conditions in uh, the country of Belarus, whether that is schooling for girls, whether that is relief of poverty or, or, or medicine. And so they come from all these different areas of the world. And the thing that was causing so much chaos, so much brouhaha on the Internet, was that one of the girls came with a head wrap on, a headscarf. And people were just livid saying, oh, it's, it's, it's endorsing the, the religious oppression of women and how terrible, and you've got you to gotta take that off the market and you got to publicly apologize. Well, I don't doubt, I, I don't have a, a, a moment's doubt that there are not women who are repressed by false religion around this world. But frankly, I think that women are far more oppressed and devalued in this culture with its insane lust for pornography and sex than having to wear a headscarf. Now that being said, that being said, if you would go to many places in the world and ask a woman, "Do you want to take your? Would you like to be able to take that headscarf off and not wear it in public?" She would look at you like you were insane, like you'd asked her to do something incredibly immodest, possibly even take up her top, and she would say, "No, are you nuts?" because culturally transculturally, beyond religion, it is a sign of modesty for a woman to keep her head covered in public. in fact, in, in uh, we see that even among the early Christians Re- read Corinthians sometimes, it was an appropriate display of modesty in the public worship of God for women to keep on their head coverings. In fact, the Jewish Talmud, the commentary of the Old Testament uh, says that that part of the the grounds for divorce for a Jewish man was for the woman to remove her head covering in public. Now, that's not following any biblical principle. There's no chapter and verse that says, you must cover your head, woman. But culturally, that is what developed as a sign of modesty. It's the same when you go to countries today, and it was certainly the case back then. So now suddenly this pops. This makes sense What's taking place. Here is this woman. In order to dry Jesus' feet, she's got to uncover her hair. Perhaps she's she's had it braided or, or, or tied up in some way and she's let that down and now she is literally scrubbing his feet with her hair. You can imagine the looks, the surprise characterized by Simon, though certainly in the minds of everyone else. The Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, remember that, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This was no act of promiscuity towards Jesus. Quite the contrary. Jesus later identifies the reason she went to such great lengths. It was to serve Jesus because Simon had not. Look at verse 45. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You gave no no ointment for my hair, but she has anointed my feet. Simon is the host... And he has failed in every way to act like the host. All of these things, from the washing of the feet to the, to the kissing of the face, to the anointing of the head, were all common courtesy things for people in the first century to experience when they came to someone's house. Think about the first century. Think about living conditions there. It is dusty. It is dirty roads covered in sand, garbage, and animal droppings. You walk around in all of that all day with open-toed sandals. There is a reason why there is a basin of water and a towel offered to you when you walk into someone's house. We have no formal policy at our house, but even today, people feel obligated when they come in to kick their shoes off. Maybe just a Michigan thing, because we never did that growing up in Ohio. I'm just have to just have to say, but but even now we understand why, right? The, the, the shoes that you wear are probably some of the most dirtiest objects of your clothing. And so you take them off out of respect. How much more the first century? I mean, this is not agriculture uh, agricultural culture here, all right? Uh, we, we understand what's going on here. Imagine sitting at some, uh, reclining at table with someone, their feet in your face while they're eating dinner, and having not washed their feet. It's not good practice, And yet, this guy didn't do it for Jesus. He showed no love for him, even as a guest. Yet, when this forgiven sinner approaches Jesus and falls at his feet weeping, she finally looks to see his uncovered feet and realizes they've not been washed. They've not been washed. And so, with them wet from her tears, she begins herself to wash them and clean them with her hair. She finds no towels, no basin, but that does not stop her from serving the Lord Jesus. There is no t- hesitation whatsoever; she is eager and ready to serve, and that is true of all forgiven people. when we realize when we realize what God has done for us, how Jesus has served us in taking on flesh and coming to this world and and living and dying for our sins then No job is too big or too lowly. No request from Christ is too difficult or too menial or or too degrading. When a need arises, those that are forgiven simply serve. We just serve. Forgiven are thankful. They are servant-hearted. Finally, the forgiven are worshipful. The forgiven are worshipful. This woman goes beyond a tearful expression of thanks and a humble display of service. She ends with an unashamed, extravagant display of worship. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she takes the alabaster flask and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Again, though certainly passionate, we shouldn't understand her actions as forward or suggestive, even if those around her might have. It is simply this. As far as she is concerned, no one else needs to be in that room because she's in the presence of Christ, her Savior. Therefore, she is not worried. She's not tremble with fear at public opinion. She's not worried what people are going to think about her. She is going to worship her Savior. The kisses were offered in homage as if to a king, just as God says we should honor his son in Psalm 2. The costly ointment, normally reserved for small amounts on the head, seems barely appropriate to anoint even the lowliest part, the feet of Jesus, her Savior. Later in Luke's gospel, we will see Jesus telling the crowds to count the cost before they follow him. He looks to unbelievers who have an interest in Jesus and he says, "Look, you can come to me as my disciples, but you need to know what you're getting into first. You need to count the cost. You need to realize what are you going to have to give up, what are you going to have to lose, or to come to me. If you've settled that in your mind, then come and follow and enjoy the salvation I offer." But here's the thing: he never says he never says to those who have believed and follow, "Count the cost." Why? Because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. They're willing to give up anything for Jesus. There is no cost too great. It doesn't matter. Because they understand the cost with which they have been saved. They understand the joy of knowing and being known by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he can ask anything for them. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too big in order to give over to him. So those people who would say, Well, 10% is enough. You've not understood your forgiveness. It's not about 10%. It's about saying, it's all yours. May I still have a little to live on? That's the attitude of the forgiven. It's not a matter of, well, I, I've got these plans I want to accomplish. No, it's, I live for the pleasure of the king. Do, do you mind if I also have a family in living for you? Do, do, do you mind if I'm able to own a house? Do you mind if I'm able to have that, that extra car? No? Okay, that's fine. Because I trust you, and I love you, and I'm willing to give you anything and everything. Because you've given everything for me in Christ. The forgiven know how to worship with complete abandon, not worrying about what other people think. And I don't just mean in this context, although it's appropriate in this context. I I, I guarantee some of you in here would love to raise your hands up sometimes when we sing. And you don't because you think, you're worried, what are people going to think about me? Now I have to say, if you start running up and down the aisle, then yeah, someone's going to think something and and a deacon's probably going to walk you out and say, hey, everything decent and in order. Alright? But raising your hands and worship to your king with tears streaming down your face, bring it on because he is worthy of it. He is worthy of that. Of us not being afraid what people are gonna think, of them pointing of them looking down us, he is worthy of that. But that's that's an hour on Sunday. What about how you live the rest of your life? Jesus is worthy of your complete and total unashamed devotion. So, so you don't worry about the coworkers, You don't worry about the neighbors. You don't worry about your family members. You're asking, how do I display the appropriate level of worship knowing that I have been forgiven in Christ? That's the question that motivates us in what we do. How can I make sure that He is honored above all things? And every time that we trust him enough, love him enough, to hear his word and obey, to choose him over sin and selfish desires, we are giving him worship because we are recognizing his glory and the superior satisfaction that he will bring over those things. So I ask again, is this us? Is this woman us as the people of God? Are we this unashamed? Are we this extravagant? Some people estimate the the cost of that ointment and it's phenomenal for for that day. Are are we willing to, to pour out such costly expense in a moment of worship to God or a life of worship to God? Has us being forgiven motivate us to serve Christ by serving and loving His people, by loving and serving the world? Do we live in a perpetual spirit of thanksgiving? Even even in difficult times. I mean, James says, count it all joy when you encounter difficulties and trials of various kinds. How can you do that? It's only by knowing that you're forgiven and being thankful to God. You say, no, that's not me. That's not how I live. The the, the woman is a far superior example of one who is forgiven than me. What do I do? How how do I come to, to live like her well we need to understand again and afresh the astonishment of forgiveness this is the second major thing that we see from this passage the astonishment of forgiveness in verse 39 we read now when the pharisee who had invited him saw this that as he saw what the one had done When he saw this, he said to himself, If this sort of man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, quote, When Jesus says, I have something to say to you, you should run. (laughs) He is about to throw you a grenade, an intellectual, spiritual grenade, not a physical one, but it does go off. And it's true. Simon doesn't just know it yet. So he says, Say it, teacher. And Jesus tells him this little parable. He says, "A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, and another fifty. And when he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more?" Simon answered, "The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt." And he said to him, "You have judged rightly." Jesus uses this story to reveal the faithless unforgiven heart of Simon in contrast the faith-filled forgiven heart of the sinful woman. As we hear this exchange and we see the astonishment of forgiveness we first need to be astonished by what is forgiven. We need to be astonished by what is forgiven. Here he talks about two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Uh, 50 was a lot. I think it's something like like three months wages for a, for a, a co- the average worker in the Roman Empire, basically uh, nearly impossible to make up for if you're in that level of debt and just working your normal job. But the other guy owes 500 denarii. I mean, how in the world are you going to make that up? You can't. Uh, all of us on a monthly basis, either by email or by snail mail, are reminded of our debts in this life, aren't we? It could be debts to mortgages we owe or student loans or credit cards or any number of things, but it's always a reality check for us we we aren't we aren't completely free in how we live we owe somebody something the question here is what do you owe god what do you owe god if god kept an account of every sinful act you committed those sins of raw disobedience where you you look square at the temptation in the face and know if i do this it is rebellion against god it is idolatry it is selfish love and you do it anyway If he kept every account of that, of every every sin of omission, where, oh, I was supposed to do this and I didn't do it. How about every unintentional sin, where you've sinned not even knowing, this is the right thing that God would have you to do. If he kept account of those things, what would you owe? If he kept account of every time you were supposed to love and serve and share and forgive and pray and trust and worship and failed, what would you owe him? What would you owe him? What if you came to your senses right now and said, you know what? I have been a sinner against God. I have sinned against Him. I have an incredible debt. But I'm going to change today. I'm going to change my life and now I'm going to live and love God and work the rest of your days at doing that. Guess what? Number one, you're not going to succeed because nobody's perfect. And you will fail. You'll not just fail once. You'll fail multiple times. I used to think, you know what? I'm not responsible for what I dream." Sometimes you wake up and say, man, I don't know why I dreamed that. That, that, was, that was no good, but hey, it's just a dream. It's like I was really thinking it. Yeah, you were. Because those thoughts came from somewhere. They came from your wicked heart. doesn't mean that you're going to act on those dreams in, in reality, in real life, but they came from somewhere. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't God. It wasn't your big toe. It was your heart. So even in dreaming, you're failing. You're failing. You're owing a debt. More than that, even if you started now and lived a good life, it would never outweigh the debt that you owe from your previous years. You would never be able to pay back your debt of sin to God. It is unbelievable. You are like the man that owes the 150 denarii. You're going to work your whole life and you're going to die in debt. And that's what this woman knows. That's what this woman knows. This is why it is such a joyous thing for her to experience God's forgiveness. And I love the simplicity of Jesus' rebuked Simon here. I mean, I mean, she, she, I mean, (laughs) the the whole room has got eyes locked on her. And you notice that, that when she comes up, you know, without prostrating myself down here, but, but, you know, Jesus is probably leaning on, on the the, the cushion. His feet are probably tucked up like this because it says that she, that she comes up behind him. So visually, Jesus does not have eyes on this woman. I mean, she is weeping on his feet. She, she, is, she is wiping them down. She is anointing them and kissing them. And he never turns to look at her. Why? It says because, because when he starts to talk to Simon, he tells him the parable first. And then he says he turns to the woman and says, do you see this woman, Simon? Of course he sees the woman. But he doesn't see her. That's the point. He knows she's there. He's already judged her. He, he knows her reputation, but he's not actually seen her. He's not seen her for what she is now, a woman saved by grace. A woman forgiven all of her debts. A woman who loves so deeply because she has rightly come to terms with the debt of sin she had before God that can never be repaid. And therefore she understands the depth of love shown to her by God and she has no problem loving extravagantly God back. And here's the thing, it's only when you and I really come to understand, really come to terms with the depth and the debt of our sin before God that we will ever truly be astonished by his forgiveness. It's only when we truly come to see just how, how cancerous and malignant sin is to our soul, but how offensive and obscene it is to God. And then he is able to say, I forgive you, that we will really be able to understand the astonishment and the astonishing nature of God's forgiveness. We should be astonished by what is forgiven, but secondly, we should also be astonished by who has forgiven, by who is forgiven. As this scene comes to a close, Luke says that Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And suddenly everything that was extraordinary about that woman, everything that seemed inappropriate, everything that had The righteous people in the room in a tizzy temporarily goes out the window. For in that moment, no one's thinking about her. They're all thinking about Jesus. How could he say such a thing? Verse 49, those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Telling someone their sins are forgiven? Who does Jesus think he is? Who can alone forgive sins but God? That's the point. That's the point. Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins. And if God alone can forgive sins, then Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Think about what we've, what we've been shown in these verses. He knew the thoughts of Simon. Remember I told you to, 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 to watch, because it says he answered Simon, but Simon didn't say anything. He's just thinking it. But Jesus knows his thoughts. He knew the sin of that woman. He knew who she was. He received worship from that woman. He forgives her sin. And finally, the spiritual status before God of both Simon and that woman were determined by their attitudes towards Jesus. Luke leaves us no wiggle room. From beginning to end, but even in this short passage, Luke leaves us no wiggle room. Either Luke was crazy and Jesus was crazy, or he really did these things, he really said these things, he really was these things, and that means he is God in the flesh. And here's the astonishing thing if all of our sin is ultimately against God, then all of our sin is ultimately against Jesus, but Jesus is the one who does what needs to be done that we might be forgiven. See, it doesn't work that way in human relationships. If I sin against my wife, I'm the one that goes and makes it right. I'm the one that, that should take the initiative to say, I'm sorry, how, and even how can I make it up to you? How can I display that I'm truly repentant, I'm truly sorrowful for what I've done? But that's not what Jesus does. We've sinned against him in every way imaginable. He is the wounded party. And yet he is the one who proactively works to secure salvation that we might be forgiven by him. He does it at the cost of his own life. He takes death that we might be forgiven. He is treated as the vilest of sinners before God, that the vilest of sinners might be righteous before God. Jesus bled and died under the just judgment of God for us. It was was in our place He stood condemned. And that is the astonishment of forgiveness. The very one that we sin against is the one who loves us so much that He works to forgive us. And that leads us to the final thing this morning. We should be astonished by how we are forgiven. By how we are forgiven. If we're not careful, we might read this passage too quickly and come away thinking, the woman was forgiven... Because she loved Jesus so much. In fact, I feel that's what many in in the church believe today. Not necessarily this local church, but the church at large. They believe, the more I love Jesus, the more He will love me. The more I love and obey Him, the more likely it is that He's going to love and forgive me. That The better Christian I am, the more likely it is that he's going to forgive me and save me. And nothing could be farther from the truth. In all of the Bible and in this passage here. Nevertheless, say, what about verse 47? Doesn't it say that she's forgiven because she loves? Let's read it. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. See? For. Because. Because she loved much. You have to understand what's going on here. What is the for? Here, Jesus is telling us the reason he knows that her sins are forgiven. He's telling us, this is how I can say to you, this woman who has sinned much has been forgiven. How do I know that? Because she has loved much. In other words, what Jesus is saying in this verse is, the evidence that she has been forgiven much is that she loves much. Say, how do you know that? Look at the rest of the verse. He who is forgiven little, loves little. It's, It's the exact correlation of the front. He who loves much gives evidence that he has been forgiven much, but he who loves little gives evidence that he has been forgiven little. You say, well, I I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, then let's look at verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not your love, not your worship, not your servant-mindedness, not your affection. Your faith has saved you. Pastor Legan Duncan says, If our justification is by love, we're all going to hell. If our justification is by love, we're all going to hell. But Jesus is saying, The fact that this woman trusts me, believes in me, has put her faith in me, is evidenced by her love. That's the astonishing thing about forgiveness. The forgiveness that the God of the Bible gives, and that is, you don't earn it. You don't work for it. We want to, we want to say, well, well I had a hand in this. You know, I was a really good person. I really turned my life around. And, and, and that's, that's, that's why God. I know God's going to save me in the last day. Then you're probably not going to be saved on the last day. Because that's not what God does. He says, all of the spiritual resources that you can muster are worthless before me. You can't ever do anything good enough, hard enough to earn my forgiveness. But here's what you can do. You can trust me you can trust me that I've done the hard work. I've sent Christ to live the perfect life that you couldn't live. I've sent Christ to die the death that you deserve in your place. And when you trust in Him and say, yes, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, then I give you my forgiveness. God has secured our eternal salvation. All we must do is take hold of it by faith. During the third century, there was a terrible plague that overtook the ancient city of Alexandria. And according to Dionysus the Great, one who was there to experience it, it was only the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick, even at the cost of their own life. Here's what he writes. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. In other words, they hurt, they nursed back to health those that were sick, but caught the disease themselves and died. He goes on to say, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. Those that were not Christians didn't do this. At the first onset of the, of the disease, they pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping their vibe thereby to avoid the spread and contagion of that fatal disease. History records that even one of the most greatest physicians of the day, Galen, fled the city when it broke out. What was the difference? Why did the pagans run in terror, leaving behind their husbands, their wives, and their children to save themselves? And why did the Christians stay even when they might die? Why were they willing to treat the sick better than themselves when everyone else was not? The difference was simple. Simple yet profound. The Christians had been forgiven. The Christians had been forgiven. When we behold the astonishing work of God in bringing forgiveness to sinners, it should change our life. Just as with this sinful woman, the salvation that we have should lead us to a life of love, not just for God, but for others as well. Father, we pray that that will be true of us as your people. And we pray that if it's not, that, it, that we will do even what we've said we should do, and that is to look again and again and again to the gospel of your grace. That we might see just how deep our need was and just how amazingly you have met that need. Father, I pray this morning if there are those that are here that do not know you, God, that you would help them to understand this message of the gospel, how they can have their enormous debt of sin forgiven by you because of your son Jesus Christ. God, for those of us that are believers here, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and ask, are we living as if we are the forgiven people of God? And if not, that you would change our hearts by the gospel of grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.